0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Through Conversations podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Philip Goff. Philip Goff is an associate professor of philosophy at Durham University. His research focuses on how to integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview. He has authored an academic book with Oxford University Press, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, and the book aimed at a general audience. Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. In this conversation, we dive deep into his book, Galileo's Error, and we discuss the challenges that arise trying to solve the problem of consciousness. We ask questions in regards to the universe and if the universe is consciousness in and of itself. Is humanity the physical representation of consciousness? How could we quantify consciousness, or is it just an illusion built by our mind to try and make us survive. How about multiple personalities? Does consciousness vary with people who have split brains? Do they have two different consciousnesses? We also dive deep into panpsychism psychism and how could it help us solve humanity's biggest challenges, such as climate change. I'm very thankful with Dr. Philip Goff for joining me. I hope you enjoy this episode and be encouraged to read his book, Galileo's Error. Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this amazing edition of Through Conversations podcast. I am here with Professor Philip Goff, the author of Galileo's Error, an amazing book regarding the foundations for a new science of consciousness, the book that tackles this crazy idea that we are uh, monkeys aware of ourselves and aware that there's a possibility that other things are aware of themselves. But maybe I'm getting into into that very, very quickly. So thank you for joining me, Professor.
1: Brilliant. Thanks so much for inviting me, Alex. Good to, good to chat.
0: Yeah, amazing. I'm very excited to have this conversation. But first of all, I'd like to ask you, how did you become immersed into Knowing or trying to solve the the idea the consciousness problem, how did you become immersed in it?
1: I think I remember just being obsessed with the problem of consciousness as far back as I can remember actually you know, one 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 th- memory that sticks out, so i don't have a very good memory actually i always <laughs> but one memory that sticks out I just in a in a second hand bookshop was for some reason reading a book by Lenin, and um he was just talking about where in entirely made of matter the sort of materialist philosophy and I just thought well, what you know what about feelings and ideas are they so having this idea that we're just mechanisms very very complicated mechanisms albeit sort of wet biological mechanisms right. but where do feelings and experiences fit into that mechanical story so that just struck me as a I didn't know what to do with it at first, but just a really deep problem. And then, you know, I studied philosophy at university and um, tried to wrestle with the problem. We were taught that there were only two options. On the one hand, the dualist position that consciousness is non-physical, kind of outside of the body and the brain, maybe in the soul or something. Or the materialist position at the other extreme were conscious feelings and experiences just are sort of mechanical processes and uh, neither of those struck me as you know I mean I kind of wanted to believe the materialist option for a while I thought that was the scientific option and I'm a big fan of science but I just came (laughs) to see that just it just ends up being not incoherent I think and then I kind of I think I was a closet dualist. then I sort of had the dualist position but I was a bit embarrassed about it and I actually, you know, left academia altogether because I just I actually wrote my end of year dissertation, my end of degree dissertation, arguing the problem was irresolvable, <laughs> was no solution. And I just went and tried to forget about it and tried to do something else and distract yeah. myself. Uh, but then I came across this middle way, which we might get on to discussing panpsychism, which, we you know, sounds kind of ridiculous at first, but seemed to me to avoid the deep difficulties with both of those options. So that's what dragged me back in and I managed to find one of the few universities in the country who had a professor who defended this crazy view. And so, yeah, that was about 20 years ago and that's what I've been doing ever since, really. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that you mentioned how consciousness for you, it's not just about... Well, we've been trying to solve it from these... Materialist perspective right that consciousness just arises from electrochemical signals from our brain but then as you point out in Galileo's error I, I laughed when you mentioned where's Susan like if you take out the skull and you see the brain of Susan this this girl who is a, a, a character on the book it's like Where, where's Alex where's where's Philip and we mm-hmm. can't point into Consciousness being just this electrochemical signal, I, I, I've been thinking on the idea that perhaps this is related into into panpsychism. But reading your book, taking a walk, I I reflected on on perhaps consciousness becoming like it had to represent in some physical form, right? And for me, it would be like trying to see the universe created humanity for it to be for consciousness to be physically represented, right? So just observing what humanity is, mm. we could see what consciousness is, how consciousness would act if it had a material form. So I have this this proverb. I don't remember where did I read it, but I would like to, to discuss it with you. Like if God, it's from the, it's from the Bible. I don't know who, who gave it to me, but it said if God is omnipresent, omniscient and omnipotent, what does he lack? If he has everything, mm-hmm. let's, 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 we could exchange God and universe. If mm-hmm. the universe has everything, what does it lack? And it lacks limits. It lacks constraint. So the idea that it created humanity to act on the potential of what it could do with constraints and how consciousness would act in and of itself mm-hmm. physically... It's really interesting, and I would love to, love to see what what are your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, wow, that's a that's a really interesting uh, puzzle. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends um, how literally you're thinking about the idea of God here. I suppose if if, if we do begin with the very traditional notion of God as all-knowing, all all-powerful, perfectly good you do have this, this problem. Why would, why would an all powerful and loving God create a world that seems so imperfect in so many ways? And why, as you say, why would God create at all if she has, you know, if she's already perfect, why create anything beyond herself? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I mean, just in that very traditional conception, of God, I, I I'm inclined to think the problem is irresolvable. I don't think an all powerful God would create, um, Intelligent life through the long, torturous process of natural selection. <laughs> if you could do it a bit quicker, um, so so I guess for that reason I, I I don't believe in in that very traditional notion of God at least. Right. But um, right. and if you start, I suppose, from the the opposite extreme of just a purely materialist universe, maybe the problem just doesn't arise then because you just think, well, there there isn't any sort of intention. At the starting point, it's just m- mechanical processes evolving according to mathematical laws. Um, I mean, so, you know, I've defended various forms of panpsychism where um, consciousness is there from the start uh, in a very rudimentary form. Even b- versions in my academic book, I explore the idea actually that the, the universe itself is conscious, is, has right. some kind of experience. This view is sometimes called cosmopsychism, but even when I explore, well, it depends what you're trying to do. But when I explored that view in the in in the context of trying to account for consciousness, I wasn't thinking of the universe as God as something with intelligence or agency. Mm. You know, you might think you need millions of years of. Evolution by natural selection to get that. I was just thinking of it as something that has experience. I mean, I think we, we need to, in the case we need to be careful about modeling consciousness from the human case. Right. You know, human consciousness involves intelligence and agency; it's incredibly sophisticated. But horse consciousness is much simpler. Consciousness of a mouse simpler again. Going to simpler and simpler forms of life to. Do, 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 do bed bugs have consciousness, maybe. If they do, it's in an incredible, a much more simple form. And for panpsychists, that process of consciousness getting simpler and simpler continues right down into organic matter. So there is a kind of consciousness that pervades the universe, but it's nothing like human consciousness. It's just consciousness in a very rudimentary form, and then over millions of years of evolution, that is molded into something more sophisticated so then again you know the problem might not arise if you 're not think if you're thinking of the universe as conscious but not intelligent or an agent then why did it create the world it did well it just it, 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 that question doesn't arise because it's not an intelligent agent it's just doing uh, what it does through kind of blind the blind forces that compel it however yes. finally uh, I, you know, I have explored in other places whether that cosmopsychist picture can be used to address what's called the cosmological fine tuning. This very surprising discovery of recent times that um, many of the numbers in basic physics, such as the strength of gravity or the the mass of electrons, Mm -hmm. are exactly as they need to be for life to be possible, and if yeah. they'd been very, very slightly different, uh, we, any kind of structural complexity any, and hence any kind of intelligent life would be impossible. And that's, I mean, a remarkable, striking fact that many philosophers and scientists think need explaining. Um, doesn't seem that it could just be an incredible fluke that exactly those numbers came up. So some, many scientists try to explain it with the multiverse hypothesis. Maybe there are... M- huge number of universes, perhaps infinite, all of which have very slightly different numbers in their physics. So if there's enough variety, maybe, you know, it's not so surprising that by fluke, one of the universes would have the right numbers for intelligent life. Um, I've actually recently had an article in Scientific American arguing that I, I think there's a logical fallacy in, in that inference from fine-tuning to the multiverse, um, which I'm actually uh, <laughs> debating on a podcast later today, actually. But, um... <laughs> but that's a big issue but but what i try to explain it try to okay is maybe if the universe is not merely conscious but is in some way um responsive to considerations of value mm-hmm. maybe we can somehow make sense of of the universe itself um fixing those numbers in order to um allow a universe consistent with the possibility of intelligent life and um you know I mean, I don't know whether that's true. I, you know, I tried to work out that detail in, in some detail. But, um, um, you know, I think the fine-tuning needs explaining and, you know, we should keep all options on the table. But then in that context, coming back to your question, okay, so why does, why does um, why would a, a universe that is, in some sense, responding to value, trying to make a world that is of value, why does it create a world of so much Mm-hmm. suffering and imperfection in it um I, so i i guess i what i'm inclined to think the best answer to that is is just to say well may, maybe that this is just a reflection of the limitations mm-hmm. of this cosmic agent maybe so we we don't necessarily why think even if you believe in god why think that god is all-powerful maybe god or, or the universe or whatever just has certain inherent limitations that, to what they're able to do. And they're doing the best they can. The only way they could create intelligent life is by creating, is by ensuring there's a universe with the right kind of laws that will eventually, through this torturous process, evolve intelligent life. Um, maybe that's just the best they could do. And they thought, you know, it's that or nothing. So I'm, I'm more open to that kind of, I mean, this is something John Stuart Mill entertained, actually, the idea of a, a god of limited powers. And... Wow. Um, oh. The, the 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 actually uh, the, uh, the the Christian philosopher uh, Thomas Urd has tried to develop this in, in the in the in the context of, of, of Christian belief as a you uh, got a book called God Can't um. mm-hmm. or oh, Process Theists actually a big tradition of Process Theists Alfred North Whitehead so these the, the, these ideas of, of of the non departing from the traditional God and that there is a, a loving God but of of limited power so I mean I'm not sure I believe that but I'm I'm more open to that than I am to the the traditional all-powerful God because I think an all-powerful loving God I I can't see would create a universe like this Hmm. but anyway sorry
0: there's a lot a lot
1: talked a bit too much
0: there well yeah if 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 I mention God and consciousness (laughs) I'm gonna get a huge answer from you (laughs) but as you see this is what what burns, what melts my heart, right? It's the idea that we're trying to, you an expert, you're trying to, to solve the problem of consciousness and trying to put into, trying to remove the, the, the human equation of consciousness, right? Trying to remove it, like not, not being anthropocentrist in a way, mm-hmm. but it's, it's interesting, right? Because the only way we could describe consciousness is through language, is through words and, One of my questions was, if there were enough words to describe what consciousness is, if we could do do it justice to to that notion. And it gets into the idea of how science has become this all or nothing quantitative equation. Everything is quantitative in, in today's world. And we've seen to, it seems to have been successful, right? We've been making progress. So it's hard to argue why should we change it.
1: Yeah. But as you
0: say in your book, Professor, we need to, to focus on, well, I'll let you go, go on to that, but what about the quantitative side? As you, as you mentioned in, the first, in your first intervention, what about feelings? What about desire? What about these this abstract notions of life? Where are they? And I would love to, to get onto that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think what motivates a lot of people to the the materialist position that that, that I reject—the position that um, we can we can explain consciousness in terms of the electrochemical signaling of the brain—I think a lot a lot of the reason people are motivated to that is they think, look at the success of science, you know, physical science, you know, it's done in, incredibly well in in, in explaining you know, more and more of the university live. And of course it's, it's one day, you know, there's a problem here, but it will one day crack it. And I mean, very often when there's articles on consciousness, actually less and less so as time goes on. But I mean, I always remember reading in in new scientific American or, or the British equivalent new scientist, you get an article on consciousness and they'd say, Oh, there's a problem here, but you know, just need to keep doing neuroscience and we'll crack it. But what I try to argue in my book, Galileo's Error, is I think that's a wrong way of thinking about the history of science. I think I I, I try to argue that science has been so successful precisely because from Galileo onwards, it was designed to ignore consciousness. Galileo comes along at the start of the scientific revolution and he really lays out the philosophical foundations he's a great experimental philosopher but he's also a, sorry he's a great experimental scientist well they they called them philosophers in those yeah. days natural philosophers he's a great experimental scientist using that term as we use it today but he was also a great philosopher and uh, he laid out you know we, we forget there's a there's a philosophical framework behind science and that was designed by Galileo and Galileo wanted science to be purely mathematical, you know, purely quantitative for the first time in in the history of thought. You know, he thought, you know, we just want a purely mathematical science. But he understood that you can't capture consciousness in these terms, because consciousness involves these funny qualities, which are as you said, it kind of can't be captured in language. You know, the what it's like to see red or what it's like to taste coffee. You can't, you can, famously, you can't communicate this to someone who's never had the experience. You couldn't communicate to someone who's been blind since birth what it's like to see colour. Um, and so you can't capture these qualities in the purely quantitative, dry, austere language of mathematics. And Galileo understood that. So he said, well, what we're going to have to do, we'll have to take consciousness and its qualities outside of science. And, you know, they're in the, the soul or rather." He had this idea of the animated body, that it was there's a sort of special animation in the body, and the the, the qualities of consciousness reside there. But um, the domain of science for for Galileo was separate to that. It was just the mathematical properties of matter. So Galileo starts off mathematical physics by putting consciousness outside of the picture, and that's gone incredibly well. And now we're in this period of history. I think where people think. Oh, it's gone so well! Yes, we found the truth. This is, it. but I think it's it's gone so well precisely because it was designed to exclude consciousness. Effectively, Galileo gave it a very a narrow task and said, you know, don't don't worry about the other tricky stuff. Just focus on. So, I think consciousness is one thing; it, it's not designed to capture. But I mean, there are other things like there are other things we know to be real that don't fit into that picture either, like the entities that mathematicians study, you know, the numbers and sets mathematicians tell us all sorts of incredible things. And, and they, most mathematicians take themselves to be discovering facts about the, the eternal realm of numbers and functions and so on. But where are these things? Where, are, where are these eternal objects of mathematics? They don't seem to be the right kind of thing to be in the spatial temporal world. How do we know about them? Right. Um, so I think that's a, there are at least two things that science can't answer, not because it's limited, but, but just, it's just not designed to deal with them. Science is designed to deal with publicly observable data and to describe it mathematically. It's not designed to deal with um, num- the eternal objects of mathematics that we know through in- mathematical intuition rather than through public observation. Or consciousness itself, I don't think, is known about through public observation. It's known about through your immediate awareness of your feelings and experiences. You can't look inside someone's head and see their feelings and experiences. Uh, I mean, other slightly more controversial things are facts about value, facts about human freedom. So, so I think the role of the philosopher is to take the facts of natural science, but also other things we know to be real, consciousness mathematical entities, value, free will, perhaps you know we can debate which which, which are in the grouping here and, and then form a kind of systematic theory of reality which can accommodate all of these things. So I think we've forgotten, we've been understandably carried away in our enthusiasm for natural science that we've forgotten this role of the philosopher mm-hmm. in bringing together the facts of natural science with other things we know about. I think we will one day return to that probably because of consciousness. Consciousness is the one thing that's <laughs> hard. Maybe you can say there aren't really facts about value. Maybe you can say we're not really free in the way we think we are. Maybe some philosophers, great philosopher Mary Lang, even argues that numbers are actually a useful fiction. They don't really exist. And there's some interesting suggestions there, but with consciousness, the idea that, you know, nobody's ever felt pain or, seen read. It's very hard to defend. And it's pretty straightforward, I think, how how that doesn't fit with a standard materialist theory reality. So I think we will get back to that stage. And I think it's, you know, it's really going to revolutionize how we think about everything, really. So so that's why, I mean, the subtitle of my book is Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. It's right. moved to a more expansive conception of what science is all about.
0: Wow. Wow. That's, there's a lot there that I, want to get into and hopefully in the other universes that you mentioned in the multiverses we get into all of the of the ideas that uh, that you mentioned but now I have to choose one road Uh, and you mentioned how like science does this through a qualitative quantitative aspect right we know you argue in Galileo's error how we know what the water does, right? What's the characters of water? And when I was walking after reading Galileo's error, I, I went for a walk, and I started to feel the wind, right? And I've al- I've always known like what the wind is, but I didn't. Th- then, like this, how moment emerged. Then I felt the wind. This mm. this side of of the equation where. The wind was touching my skin and I was conscious of, of of the wind going through me, right? And how do we put that into, into science? How do we describe, mm-hmm. for example, what you say on the intrinsic nature of things, the intrinsic nature of humanity? How, how What would a science look like, uh, like this, this world of, of research, into putting those those aspects of 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 life itself into into reality into into what we can see in the world
1: mm, yeah that's a really interesting example so i mean coming back to galileo for a second i mean those qualities i talked about talked about before galileo following aristotle people thought those qualities were out there in the world you know you have colors on the surfaces of objects and smells floating through the air and maybe that you know, the, the coldness of the wind, you know, is, was a feature of the wind, you know, there's heat and cold were as we experience them we're out there in, 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 reality. Um, and then after, after Galileo, all that's stripped away to a very austere world where you've just got purely mathematical quantitative properties, size, shape, location, motion, um, so what's happened to these qualities, these colours, sounds, smells, tastes? So Galileo said, well, they're just in the, you know, they're in the soul. Um, they're, or they're, let's let's put aside the soul. Let's say, you know, they're in the mind, they're in your head. But still, okay, fine, maybe they're not out there in the world. Maybe they're, maybe they're just in my head. But now, if we want a science of consciousness, <laughs> that's Interested in what's in my head, so the it comes back to bite us you know that we those qualities we we can't escape from them unless we say well the the experience doesn't in fact exist the, and this is what some people defend my you know my um my good friend Keith Frankish defends what's become known as the illusionist theory of consciousness that uh consciousness doesn't actually exist it's an illusion, a trick the brain plays on you you think. You're having these quality involving experiences of colors, sounds, smells, tastes, but you're not. (laughs) It's an illusion. And, um, you know, I have some interesting discussions, but I I mean, I think like many people, I just find that position intolerable because I think the thing we are most certain about is the reality of our own experiences, the qualities of our experience, you know, maybe I'm in the matrix, maybe the external world doesn't exist, but I know my experiences exist. I'm, I'm immediately aware of them. So, um, so yeah. So, so how do we, how do we do, assuming these things exist, how do we deal with them scientifically? So, I mean, I, I think we need to get to a stage where, well, I mean, let, let me be more specific rather than more abstract in, in, in how I think a science of consciousness needs to work. I, I sort of think there's an an experimental bit, and a theoretical bit, or philosophical, if you like, theoretical philosophy so the experimental bit is the, the the project of trying to track the what's called the neural correlates of consciousness. So what kinds of brain activity go along with what kinds of experience? Mm-hmm. and we've made I mean it's a difficult project, but we've made progress on that. so so that's an important scientific task, but that's not the end. That's not itself a theory of consciousness, because what we ultimately want to explain is is why certain kinds of brain activity are accompanied by certain kinds of experience. Why should that be? Why should a certain kind of neural firing, neural pattern of firings involve a feeling of pain? Why should that be? And then I don't think that's a question you can answer with an experiment, because I mean, because consciousness is not publicly observable. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, just to be clear on that, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, science deals with unobservable things. The difference with consciousness is the thing we are trying to explain is unobservable. In all of the cases with fundamental particles, we postulate them to explain what we can observe. So they're the postulations, not the data. With consciousness, it's the it's the it's the data, it's the starting point that's unobservable. So I don't think we can answer that question with a with an experiment. Then we have to turn to the more theoretical side, and we just have to look at the various proposals philosophers have come up with for explaining why brain activity and consciousness go together. So one is the materialist one that the that they're kind of the same thing that we don't have the neural pattern on one side and the the feeling on the other. They're just They're just one and the same thing, like water and H2O. You know, this is, I don't, you wouldn't say I have water in this glass and H2O. Water is H2O. So that's kind of the materialist position. Then there's the dualist position defended by David Chalmers, who who tries to have a a scientific form of dualism, where he, he thinks that consciousness and brain activity are separate, but they're tied together by natural law. There's just basic fundamental laws of nature that, Govern their interaction, so he he kind of believes in in non physical consciousness, but he wants to bring it into science and think of it as just a natural phenomenon. And then there's the, um, the the panpsychist option, which is to say, in a in a way, it's a kind of identity. The panpsychist says physics tells us what stuff does, but it doesn't tell us, as you said, how it behaves. But it doesn't tell us what it is.
0: Mm-hmm
1: what we sometimes call its intrinsic nature what what, what an electron is considered independently of what it does um so this leaves open the theoretical possibility that the intrinsic nature of matter is consciousness so so we just have so so this we just have matter particles or fields but it can be described from two perspectives. Physical science describes it, as it were, from the outside in terms of what it does. But matter from the inside, in terms of what it is, is constituted of consciousness. So that's another way of explaining why brain activity and and consciousness go together. It's a kind of identity. So whereas the, whereas the materialist says, materialist wants to reduce the experience to the brain state, the panpsychist does it the other way around. They reduce the brain state to the experience. Mm. You know, they say when you're thinking of a brain state as a neuroscientist, you're just thinking about what it does and what its bits do. In terms of what it is, it's an experience. Um, so, so anyway, so we just have to, I think, distinguish these th- this more theoretical and this more experimental. We start with tracking the neural correlates, and then we look at various theoretical philosophical explanations and i you know there there are various criteria those explanations have to satisfy i think you know they have to be coherent they have to fit the empirical data and they have to be as as simple as possible and as elegant that's you know how we do physics you know it's yeah. simple and elegant and i think you know basically i think the materialist option is incoherent the dualist option is arguably doesn't fit the data or or at least is 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 very unparsimonious, it's very inelegant and non-simple. And the panpsychist option looks to be the best. It's coherent, it's simple, it's elegant, it fits the data. So that, that's the one we should go for. But I mean, you know, what I'm more passionate about is just getting people to that. You know, it's, it's, it's in the realm of philosophy at the moment. I hope it will one day be science. I think things become science when the rules of the game are se- separate. Sorry, the rules of the game are settled. Hmm. So that's that's the, hence the subtitle of my book, the foundations for a new science of consciousness. I want to, I'm trying what I'm ultimately trying to do. I'm not not necessarily so passionate about the panpsychism, just to try and develop a methodology here where we know what we're doing, where we've at least got to first base. And at the moment, I don't think we're quite
0: there, but <laughs> getting there. Wow. Yeah, and as you say, it's 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 it makes it, the the heart melt into into this question of where could our science, our new way of thinking about how, why are we here and, like, what does it make this to be an experience? Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating in the same way that we're just beginning, right? So it's likely that we're going to have to wait and see how this unfolds, no? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we have to... The sceptic Michael Shermer saying recently, this is why he wants to go into cryogenesis to find out what the future holds. And um, yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, it's very early days. So, I mean, I don't think we should. I mean, some of my anti-materialist comrades get annoyed with me entertaining illusionism or, you know, some of these, you know, taking very seriously materialist views. But I just think it's, it's such early days. We need to keep all options on the table. And you right. know, we, we, we don't really know where, where things are going to lead. But yeah, I mean, I suppose, as I say, what, what I feel most confident about and what I, what I, what I want to, I mean, I think, I think at the moment, we're in a, a sort of confused state where people think the job of science is to account for publicly observable data. If you've, if you've got your grand theory that can explain all the publicly observable data, job done. Mm-hmm. But if you religiously follow that, you won't believe in consciousness because consciousness is, is not known about through public observation. It's known about just through your immediate awareness of your feelings and experiences. And someone who's very consistent on this is Daniel Dennett. He says, it's not publicly observable. It's We shouldn't believe in it. Uh, so he's consistent. I'm consistent, I like to think. But I think most people think They don't want to go as far as Dennett. They think, yeah, consciousness does exist. It's a hard problem here, as as David Chalmers famously called it. But still, the job of science is just concerned with publicly observable data. I think that's incoherent. So we have to get to a stage where we realize that the job of science is to account for the data of, of public observation, but also the data of consciousness. And that's a fundamental datum in its own right. And we just need to find the simplest theory that can accommodate both those data. Um, so yeah, so that's, that, that's where we need to get to when we're, we're yeah. not really at the starting point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to, to, to at least live on the, on the beginnings of, or the, you know, the start of the, of getting answers and to see where, where would the world and reality as we know it look like and, how would we change do you think that now that that we have a new science that says okay consciousness is and we have a framework and we understand what the experience is how do you think the world looks like after we we now have the the rules of the yeah, game that's a, good, that's a good question um and
1: yeah so i th- well i mean the most obvious answer is i i i think we'd be a bit closer to the truth or 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 further away from confusion (laughs) and so that that, that's that's an advance in itself to have you know a more consistent coherent worldview theory of reality but also you know i think this isn't just an abstract intellectual puzzle because consciousness is what gives human life value you know there's uh, pleasure subtle pleasure conscious thoughts abstract reasoning you know these are the the things that human life is all about. And yet, I would argue that our official scientific worldview doesn't have a place for consciousness. It's, it's in fact, incompatible with the reality of consciousness. You know, and the way to see that is, you know, just attend now to your experience, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the tastes. Our official scientific worldview tells us that all that's really going on in your head is purely a purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling and i think that's just tantamount to saying that those qualities don't really exist mm. i i think illusionist keith frankish and daniel dennett are right that's just just to say that the pu- that all there is is the purely quantitative story is just to deny the reality of those qualities we uh immediately apprehend or at least appear to in the, in their view we don't really apprehend them um, so, so I, I think we're at a stage where our official scientific worldview is incon- incompatible with the thing that is most certain and the thing that gives human life value. Uh, and you know, I think this is, can be quite alienating. I think, you know, we, we know we have feelings and experiences, but our, our official scientific worldview tells us we don't. And so there's a lot of crazy things happening in the world at the moment that I think, you know, I mean, have all sorts of straightforward um, economic explanations. Like, you know, I mean, the the, the 30 years after the war, we had highly constrained capitalism. Everyone got, I mean, in in, in the US and and Western Europe, everyone got richer, society got more equal. From the 80s onwards, we thought, screw it, let's have Wild West capitalism. And, you know, inequality shut up. I mean, I think that's a lot to do with Mm -hmm. the predicament we're in now. But I think part of it is also this sense that, The scientific story we don't fit into it there's a sort of a jarring effect there it's almost denying what what gives us us uh us us value and meaning and i mean especially if you think there are facts about value or facts about human freedom that that are also looked to be looked to be incompatible with that story although that's more controversial but the very reality of consciousness um so i do think this you know i mean ultimately as i say very often we should be interested in um, not what we, uh, you know, not what we'd like to be true, but what is most likely to be true. But I think, you know, and I think there's a good case for the probable truth of panpsychism, or at least some kind of anti-materialism. But also, I think this would be a worldview which is like not only more true, but is slightly more consonant with with human happiness and our mental and spiritual well-being. You know, it's it's a universe in which we understand how we fit into it, and we we can fit in the rea- the that which gives human life value.
0: Yeah, yeah. And as you say, getting into a reality where palm like psychism is the norm rather than the exception, you you argue that it could help us tackle a, a, an array of things, an array of, of challenges that we have because we wouldn't see... Uh, Reality, or we wouldn't see humanity being like uh, an isolated or, or or just a separate thing of the experience. It would be experience in and of itself, and reality would be treated differently. So, if I go around and I see that consciousness within someone or within something is is legitimate, I wouldn't go and and pollute the environment. I wouldn't go and and make, maybe go into a war. I would I would be more kind because I would see that. This individual has consciousness not in a, in a materialist way, but there's something. There's a spark to put it in 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 a word. There's there's this this possibility that wow, there's a soul. Or the the, the ethical the ethical implications of of panpsychism are are huge because we now live in a world that I guess it's been overly stimulated, right? It's it's in a capitalist society where we've separated the the aha moment of being alive into the actual reality of being alive and i'm hopeful that panpsychism gets adopted in a way that we see we see it permeating into the way we treat the world also
1: in terms of the the environment i think you're completely right that it if you if you if you're a materialist and you think of a tree as simply a mechanism, mm-hmm. then um, you know its value is only indirect in terms of what it can do for us. Whereas if you think of a tree as a conscious organism, albeit of a very alien kind, then I think it you know it has value. It has intrinsic value in its own right. And, um, you know, if you see burning down of huge forests, you can see that that is the the burning of conscious organisms. It adds a whole moral dimension. Um, yeah, so I kind of speculate in the book about what it would be like to be a, a child raised in, in, in a panpsychist worldview and right. how that transforms your relationship to nature, although my own children don't seem to be hmm. really sympathetic to panpsychism. But anyway um so yeah and you know more generally i suppose i mean i i mean not just capitalism but our specific conception of capitalism as you know an exclusive focus on shareholder value which you know wasn't always the case in the post war decades we had a, a stakeholder conception of capitalism where there were you know various stakeholders workers and trade unions and uh um, other other people involved so i mean i think i suppose when you when when you don't have when you when your kind of official world view doesn't have any locus of value when when it's just a kind of empty meaningless universe mm-hmm. then i think one does naturally turn to if something fills that vacuum maybe you know consumerism or or um you know nationalism, or um, you know I think these these things fill fill the value. Whereas if you can have a worldview um, in which things have value as as part of our official scientific worldview, maybe things even have certain purposes, wow. um, then you know I think that potentially helps us to move to 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 you know to to a conception of of the economy that is more stakeholder-based, more value-based, which doesn't just think that uh, the only important thing is, is the stock market in the absence of any, any other locus of value, I think. Um, yeah, so I kind of call myself a, a non-revolutionary anti-capitalist, I think. I mean, I think after, after the war, we, we started moving to a seriously mixed economy, not, you know, just get rid of capitalism. But, um, you know, people forget taxes in the US were 91%. And it was fine. sorry on the wealthy uh you know the the wealthy paid an effective tax rate of 70% which is you know double what they pay now and it was fine we had great prosperity um so I think you know we moved to where we we try you know what can we take out of the market what can we could we have set public spaces free of adverts you know Keynes the dominant economist of the post-war years thought that by now we'd be working you know two or three day a week or you know we'd be working we move as a society to have a less labor intensive society and um you know moving towards seeing what works outside of the the narrow constraints of the market um i i don't believe you know that in 5000 years time we we, we will have a a capitalist society but you need to you know see what can work and i think part of Allowing people to move towards that is it, it, having a sense of real value yeah. and purpose as part of reality and not just as a useful
0: fiction. Yeah, wow. And one of the challenges that arises from, from trying to solve the, the, the puzzle of, of value um, is that I'm sure of my own immediate experience and, and consciousness. I'm, I, I know that I, I can feel I don't know if I'm like this this organic version of the Turing test, or you are, or like we're all yeah. zombies pretending, or just being programmed to know or to think that we're conscious, right? A conscious person would say that he felt the wind and he had this qualitative experience, right? <laughs> so that's that's a huge puzzle in and of itself. That I I don't know if 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 consciousness is an illusion, is 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 a program, but. I do believe that it's a possibility. It could be a possibility.
1: There are very difficult questions here. I mean, Turing, incidentally, um, in his initial paper on this, uh, on the what's now become the Turing test, what he called the imitation game, um, I mean, he starts off the paper in an interesting way saying, you know, what is thought? And then he says, that's too complex a question. That's too, We can't get precise on that and he actually says i'm going to redefine thought to mean what passes the turing test <laughs> um, you know so he explicitly redefines thought and i think you know we've got a concept when we think about artificial intelligence we think about what passes the turing test effectively we have a very behavioral notion of intelligence but actually i mean i don't th- i mean i think okay you can use words how you want but there's also a notion of real intelligence real understanding that has to involve consciousness, the the experience of understanding. If you have a very complicated mechanism that can pass the Turing test and that can, you know, speak opinions on the pandemic and what we should be doing and the global economy and so on, but it doesn't have any consciousness, any inner experience. And I don't think it really has understanding. It, it, It doesn't really have opinions on the pandemic. It's just mechanically set up to, to parrot these things so i think i mean this is a hugely neglected aspect of ai is um what would it require to have artificial understanding which i think would essentially involve artificial consciousness wow. um, but um coming back to yeah i mean how do we know others it is true that you can't know for certain whether other people are just complicated, unfeeling mechanisms, zombie to use the the philosophical term. Yeah. Um, we, we can't rule that out, but there are lots of things like that. We can't rule out whether we're in the matrix and it's all an illusion, the external world is illusion. Um, we can't, as as Bertrand Russell famously observed, famously observed, we can't rule out that the world was created five minutes ago to look just as it is. And, um, So, you know, we have to have some starting points. And to my mind, the starting point, I mean, I agree with Descartes on this, the starting point of one's own experience is more certain, is more evident even than the reality of the external world. So so it doesn't make sense to me to the illusionist position where you you accept the reality of the external world, but you deny the reality of the internal world because the internal world seems to me more certain. Maybe not totally certain, but more certain than the reality of the external world. So that would be at least a starting point. Wow. I mean, we, we should have both of them as starting points, but at, at least the reality of consciousness should be a starting point for, theori- for theorizing about the ultimate nature of reality.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and I know I know we're we're short on time. I just had a, a couple of questions to wrap up, but this one is very very broad. I just. I can't miss the opportunity to ask you but you mentioned on how researchers have done experiments with split brain patients right and how how does consciousness fit into that equation and it came into my into my mind while reading it what about people who have multiple personalities how would consciousness look like with them what would consciousness be in in let's say a person who who is Alex and then Joe right but it's it's within me let's say with consciousness shift
1: yeah yeah so this i mean the split brain i mean it's it's controversial exactly what's going on there but i mean the most at least the most straightforward way of interpreting it is that there are two conscious experiences two conscious minds in one head i mean we get these bizarre situations where um you know with one hand somebody is is trying to get a, a dress or something and with the other hand they're putting it back right. um because the the uh the, the, i mean the split brain we have the, the right hemisphere controls the left side of the body and the left hemisphere controls the right side of the body and um you know they can be in, in conflict with one another and i mean all sorts of very 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 strange uh scenarios yeah um so so I, I, and and you're right yeah with um I mean, again, it's controversial how to understand um, disassociation, where people seem to have a number of characters or alters within the w- right. within themselves. But I mean, people have argued uh, that you know the most straightforward way of understanding that is that there are two conscious minds within w- within the one person. I mean, I think these are. All, I mean, these are just all. I mean, this, thi- uh, this helps thinking about panpsychism. I mean, it, many people think uh, you know, the, what is often thought as the biggest problem for panpsychism is, okay, we postulate consciousness at the level of particles. How do lots of little conscious minds come together to make a big conscious mind? Um, but the way, actually, the, the pan- very good panpsychist philosopher Luke Roloffs with his book Combining Minds, thinks, well, thinking about split brain helps us with this because this seems to be cases where you where you split the corpus callosum in the middle of the brain one conscious mind becomes two uh and if it goes one way it looks like it could go the other way if we if we were to sort of reverse that we could have two conscious minds becoming one so i think this does help us actually i mean it's very strange it's very bizarre science tells us all kind of weird things and it's it's not totally uncontentious but you know this might help us actually, with the theoretical frame, some of the deep theoretical problems of
0: panpsychism itself. Yeah. Professor, I, I don't want to take more time because we're, we're running late. I just want to say that, as, as you can see, the your book, Galileo's Error, is truly an opportunity for me to experience or to read what consciousness could look like in the future, what it is and what has been, and how, how do we understand it. And it has given me the opportunity to discuss it with friends, with to, to discuss what consciousness would look like for others. And to wrap up, how do you think people who believe in panpsychism should discuss it with those who are skeptical about it?
1: Mm, I would, I'm just first, that's great to hear, Alex. That's really lovely. You know, you write a book and, um, you know, it's just to hear that some people are reading it and getting something out of it. Um yeah, that's I mean, it's a big problem. Things have changed a lot. You know, when I when I finished my Ph.D., well-meaning professors advised me not to talk about panpsychism when I was trying to get a job. But, you know, in, in 10 years, it's really come to be a still probably a minority view, but, you know, much more respected. And I've, you know, graduate students from all over the world coming to visit, coming to work with me and so on. Um, so it's it has become a lot more acceptable. I find actually the laughter has turned to anger. A certain uh, a small number of senior members of the profession are sort of really annoyed that this is mm-hmm. that this is that they've always thought we, they would thought was ridiculous, and they've spent their whole working lives thinking this is ridiculous, and now it's being taken seriously. And I found that kind of really irritates some people, and um but um what do we say? Yeah, I mean I think it's the first thing one can do is just correct certain, you know, misunderstandings as you did at the beginning actually that it it it, it doesn't literally mean everything is conscious. It's it's the, it's the fundamental constituents of reality. So it mightn't be so we have conscious particles but it might not be ever, perhaps or there are different ways of thinking about the fundamental building blocks. It doesn't mean literally every arrangement is conscious. It doesn't mean the cup is conscious. And also the consciousness we have, the idea of consciousness is just a very general notion of experience, which is, it's not like the electrons are sitting there feeling bored or wondering whether <laughs> it's the yet, or, you know, that's very sophisticated human consciousness. What we're talking about here is almost unimaginably simple forms of experience, Sim- more, much more simple than the experience of a bed bug might have. So, you know, moving away from that anthropomorphic conception of consciousness It's almost like another Copernican revolution, you know, where we stop thinking that we're in the center of the universe. But yeah, I mean, apart from that, I guess you just got to get into the problem of consciousness and just say, look, this is this is not just a conventional scientific problem. Because the the way I I found most useful to put that across is just by saying consciousness isn't publicly observable. And this is so different to any other scientific issue where the, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable. So, you know, just push the problem of consciousness and um, get people on board with that. Yeah, you know, it takes time for, for yeah. culture to change. and But I've certainly noticed it changing. And I think in another 10 years, probably people will wonder what, what, what the problem was, why people were so concerned about this.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's exciting to, to see that at least it's opening a door to a new conversation on what consciousness is rather than shying away from the challenge. And people like you, Professor Goff, who wrote Galileo's error. I will put the link in the bio for everything on, on your work and how to get the book because I do believe that it gives an opportunity to take a glance on on what and if if consciousness is a gift or a curse in the universe for us or for everything and it it makes one melt into big questions on on reality on on this version of the matrix. So, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Alex. I've really enjoyed the
0: conversation. Take care. Take care. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Through Conversations Podcast. If you find this episode interesting, don't miss out on new conversations and subscribe to the podcast at any podcast feed you use and leave me a review. Also, consider sharing it with someone you think can enjoy this episode. Our new awesome music is by Joe Lyle. More info can be found at joeliledrums.com hosted and produced by Alex Levy.